We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... Josh Allen, quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. You know, we saw the the highlights, the hurling over guys, and we even saw the the fantastic throws where he he showed off the arm strength. And here it is, right here, him showing that athletic ability. But for me, I, I feel like we're going to see that leap from his passing perspective. I mean, sitting back, being a traditional quarterback, dropping back and doing his thing. I know he's athletic, and I I hope I don't see as much running this yeah. upcoming season. And what they did is they added pieces that's going to make him more comfortable. The running back room, they got all the OGs sitting behind them, so he's going to be able to hand it off to absolute legends of this era. And then I feel like another guy that's going to be big for him is Cole Beasley. I feel like Cole Beasley could be... His Julian Edelman, just yeah. a guy that he can count on. I, I saw Cole Beasley talking this past weekend, and he said, I'm probably annoying Josh Allen right now, which hmm. means he's asking Josh Allen a thousand questions, which means as a veteran wide receiver, because I've been in that position before, the reason he's asking questions is because he wants Josh Allen to answer out loud, and they can be thinking on the same page. And if they're working on that right now this offseason, I guarantee once Josh drops back, and last year or last season when he had that moment where he thought, run, he doesn't have to run anymore. Mm-hmm. He can have that safety receiver that he can constantly go to almost like a security blanket. So I'm looking for Josh Allen to make an improvement. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder Drew Gear. That's my producer Chris Krueger, and that was Nate Burleson of NFL Network talking about Josh Allen's development. Wow! <sighs> Folks, it is the dead of summer. I mean, this is the only time of year that the NFL could possibly conspire to not only kick officials out of the rulemaking process, but also push an extra two-game schedule at the expense of season ticket holders having to pay for the privilege of watching backups play in place of the starters, all so the league can grind a few more shekels out of the TV networks on an annual basis. (laughs) But everybody's too busy enjoying the fact that the sun is out here to really pay any attention to it. Chris, real tangible football has to come back soon because I can't take much more of this bullshit. Comes back on Thursday, next Thursday. Oh, my God. 
I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> Chris, I got to ask you, how was your weekend? Dude, I got... I went to Allen. I haven't been out on Allen Street since your wedding when I went out with there we go. the Trimbles and Greg Trelone. Uh I did go to Allen on Saturday night and one of the last stops because in the group, you know, is mostly female. So Now, folks, you got to understand, Chris is not an outgoing guy. So the fact that he's made these, I was shocked to find out that he had another crew that apparently I know nothing about. It's like the episode of Seinfeld where you find out that Elaine had another group of friends? That's what this is like for me right now. Yeah, they're, they're, there's another group of friends that <laughs> they don't know who you are. You'll probably <laughs> never meet them. And we'll, we'll keep it that way. But I was out on, I was out on Allen. And it, it, when you're out with a group that's, you know, there's more uh, females than men, you just, men are easier to go wherever. Because women always have like a problem with some place, you know. They're like, I, I don't like the the glasses that they use, or their their bar stools are too high. I, you know, we're just like, do they have beer there? Alcohol? Okay, I'll go in there. So one of the last spots that we went to uh, on Saturday night was to Brick Bar, and I was not allowed in Brick Bar. <laughs> I pulled out my ID. Folks, for those of you who don't know, Brick Bar, it's nothing to write home about. I mean, I would say out of all the bars in Elmwood, Allentown, it puts the duh and dump. It's 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 a hole. I'm sorry for any of you that I'm offending out there, but good lord. No, we went. I pulled out my ID. I handed it to him, and he was like, "Yeah, you can't, you're not, yeah, you're not allowed in here." Uh, and my and I mean, I was too drunk to think that my mohawk would be the answer, <laughs> but it 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 was not it was not because of the mohawk. Do you have any guesses to why I was not allowed in Brick Bar? I and it's not because of the mohawk. Maybe just because they knew that you have the personality of a wasp, and that you just you're like the atomic bomb. Okay, everybody's having a good time; they're hanging out, enjoying themselves, and then boom, you show up, and everything's dead. I'm not kidding. This is real life. I was not allowed in Brick Bar because I was wearing a plain white t-shirt. <laughs> How is... Since when does Brick Bar need to have a dress code? First of all, I've seen people sleeping at the bar in Brick Bar. Full ass drunk asleep. You're telling me that you weren't allowed in because of your white t-shirt? I had just a plain... Uh, from the gap. Well, first of all, who do you think you are wearing a white t-shirt in public? Oh, cousin, looks, looks good like, on me. Like the rest of us slobs who can't help but get food on their shirts. You you knock that off. This is a lesson to you, sir. But yeah, why would you not allow people in to, that have white shirts it's on? It's a profiling mechanism. <laughs> You're clearly too high maintenance for this bar. We don't want your kind in here. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I didn't miss anything else. I just grabbed an Uber and came home. Oh, that was the I'm, end of my night. I'm really happy that you waited until here to tell me about this. Well, yeah, because I told you when you got here, I was like, oh, yeah, I wasn't allowed in Brick Bar. And you were like, why? I'm like, no, no, no. I assumed it was because no. Rob Gronkowski has taken up Bouncer of the bar and he's heard all the terrible things we said about him. No, they rejected him because he lost all that weight. But <laughs> He can no longer hang. But, well, you, but you, got, you finally made it as a podcasting radio personality over say, the weekend. I was going to say, my, my weekend went much better. First of all, I drank a lot. I got a lot of landscaping done. Things were great, but I went to the Queen of Heaven Carnival. You know, 
that's a they, they it's huge. A, it's huge here in the local. A huge, Jesus Christ! You, you make it sound like it's a concert. Well, it is at least from my perspective as an Uber driver. Constant price surges in that okay, area, so, so what a lot of people is, folks, go. There's a massive beer tent in the carnival. Everyone goes. There's live music. It's a great time. So I'm walking through the crowd with a bunch of my idiot friends, and we're arguing about back in the day when we used to do collections as a living. Yes, I'll let you in on a little bit of my life. I used to be a collections agent. I was that scumbag on the phone who used to just call an anti... It's, I'm not proud of it, but it's who I am, and I'm willing to bring it to the podcast. So we were having conversations about back in the days of doing repos and you know just collections and telling stories. And as I'm walking through the crowd talking to my friends... I hear, hey, you're Drew Gear. And I stop and I look and there's a kid, a guy, I'll, I'll say guy, because he was taller than me. So you can't call anyone taller than you a kid in a charged buffalo hat who goes, you're Drew Gear. And I was like, oh shit, do I, I don't recognize you. And he goes, no, no, I heard your voice. I recognize you from the podcast. You're the, 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 the rock pile report. You're the guy. Do you know that, I don't know if, if any of you listening to this, there might as well have been pyrotechnics, and I might as well—I might as well have been dressed like Axl Rose at that point because I felt like a rock star. I'm not gonna lie, his name is Bob. It turns out Bob works the Ford plant and listens to our podcast every week and recognized me by the sound of my voice. That's impressive to to be able to do that. I don't. I, it was just an incredibly. And then obviously my wife is standing there and we're, we're, I'm talking to him. and she's just rolling her eyes so hard that it's like they might never come out of the back of her skull. He's like, wait a minute, am I just, he's like, am I empowering you to just continue? She's like, yes, you're ruining everything for me. (laughs) So, Bob, if you're out there listening this week while you're at work, I'll tell you what, you're cool. And the next time when we throw a live event this season, meet us there. Your first beer is on me. All right? You made my fucking night. That was, Chris, I'm sorry, I got recognized because of my voice. I know, that's that's impressive. You called me, I think I'm... Saturday about that. And you're like, yeah, this guy works at the Ford plant. And I was like, oh, I wonder if he knows the guy that my ex-wife was with. <laughs> no, not everybody. Chris, not everybody knows your ex-wife. Well, but, if you're in Hamburg, you do. But Chris, <laughs> raise a toast to Bob. Ah, made my weekend. Ah, folks, there's all kinds of nonsense out there that we could talk about, but I'm not going to bore you with that because, again, I have no interest in it. And I'm not going to drag you into – I'm not going to talk about anything I don't feel is actually all that interesting. I mean, the NFL can do whatever it wants. There's nothing Bills-related out there because, for once, they're operating like an actual NFL franchise. There's no arrests. There's no – We still got nine days. There's no contract drama. There's nothing. It's quiet. And so with that, I feel like – we issue the whole Bills News update, and we jump right into the 2019 training camp preview of the offense. Last week, we broke down the ways that a very good 2018 Bills defense had added the pieces ahead of training camp to hopefully make them a more consistent unit, and to go from very good to potentially elite in 2019. This week, we're going to talk about the men who are vying for a, just a shot at suiting up on Sundays and hopefully contributing to the Bills' offense going from something an offensive coordinator in 1960 would have laughed at to one hopefully potent enough to contend on a week-to-week basis. I mean, Chris, it wasn't the defense that led us to a 6-10 record last year. No. In fact, if it wasn't for the defense, 
we might have had the number one or number two pick in the draft. That, that, that's a hundred percent agree with that. But I mean, we couldn't put up points at all, you know, for the uh, on our off on our offense. Well, and that's our defense did well enough to like hold teams to twenty points. So you're just asking your offense, hey. Get in the end zone three times in one game. It, that, it doesn't seem that hard. That meme of the guy poking something with a stick and saying, hey, do something. <laughs> that was every Bills fan everywhere looking at the Bills offense last year. That was the defense looking at the NFL last year. And it shows when you look at the 2018 statistics. So here's a rankings rundown of the 2018 Buffalo Bills on the offensive side of the ball. They were 30th in points per game. 30th in yards per game. 32nd in completion percentage. They were bottom of the barrel. 31st in yards per pass attempt. 9th in rushing first downs per game. Now that's interesting. 16th in red zone touchdown percentage. 18th in plays run per game. So Chris, it's not like they didn't get their opportunities to produce. They just didn't. They were, it wasn't like they were bottom of the league in plays run or opportunities to get plays. They just didn't do anything when they had the ball in their hands. Then 13th in average time of possession, 13th in yards per pass attempt through the final three weeks, and 8th in the NFL in points per game over the last three weeks. I mean, if you want to talk about trends, Chris, that, that's where I start. Those last three weeks, and let's take it even farther back. If you want to compare... The first five games of 2018, we only had two games with more than 250 yards of total offense. Chris, how many times does Drew Brees throw for 300 yards in the game? He's usually uh, he's done that by the by halftime. Okay, we did it twice in five games as a team, not even passing. Over the last five games. All five games, we had more than 250 yards, which shows improvement, as does Josh Allen. Over the first five games of last year, after he had to come in when Nathan Peterman, I, I mean, I don't even know what that was. <laughs> I mean, with, I feel like we were conned. I feel like Nathan Peterman just, duh, he rushed and spied us all, Chris. But over the first five games, Josh Allen came in. His touchdown-to-interception ratio was 2-5. to five. What that tells you is he's not really throwing the ball much at all. If you've only thrown two touchdown passes in five weeks. Yeah, it's because he's running for his life. The last five games, his touchdown-to-interception ratio was 7-7. Seven and seven. So at least it evened out. You know what I mean? That has to make you feel more confident that he's at least... He trusts wide receivers to try and make a play. So when you want to talk about what, much like last week, what went wrong on offense. And folks, I got to say, point blank, I'm ready to move on from all of this. What are you doing? I'm burying you. I'm alive. I'm alive. You're waking the neighbors. No. Shut up. No. Close your eyes. Let the dirt just shower over you. <laughs> I mean, folks, let's put it in the ground. This horse isn't just beaten. It was beaten, it died, it was melted down into glue, and the team used it to send out letters to all the season ticket holders in an attempt to try to give them some hope that what we saw in 2018 was an isolated incident. It's scorched earth here for me, folks. And I'm not going to relive it because, frankly, I, I'm in a good mood today. And Chris doesn't have enough beer 
in his apartment for me to commit to that. What are you talking about? I got 10 more cans of lemon strawberry. Oh, I would rather <laughs> die. When you want to talk about what went right, we saw progression from Josh Allen, who everyone called the rawest of all the first-run eligible quarterbacks. It, it was something, I, Chris, I didn't think he was any good. But by the end of the season, he had me believing that he had enough in the tank that if you put something around him, he could be something. And by the end of the year, yes, he still relied on his legs more so than his arm to make the big plays. You could see him becoming more confident when it came to just, hey, how, what do I see? What do my eyes tell me? Where do I think I can go with the football? And despite the uptick in turnovers, you saw him increase his statistical output to a point that indicates he might actually be able to run an NFL offense successfully. We also saw what I'll call relative strides by other young players like Robert Foster and Wyatt Teller. It indicates that there is some developmental upside in some of these young players. And the season ended, and my liver still functions. And those, those, that's what, what went right about the 2018 Buffalo Bills offense. So with that, as we head into 2019, it's apparent that if the team wants any hope of reliving 2017 and the excitement that comes with a playoff game, it's going to require a massive improvement on the offensive side of the ball not just in terms of total output, but also in terms of game-to-game consistency. So now, folks, as we do every season, I, I believe it's worthwhile to try to take a look at the faces that make up the combination of talents that will hopefully find a way to gel in the coming weeks and, and just give us, you know, give us what we're looking for here. But let's face it, me, I'm a trenches guy. When I watch football in real time, whether it's in person or whether it's on TV, my eyes really don't wander far from the pocket in the defensive front seven. I mean, it's the part of football I think I probably have the most love for. Just this chess match between the quarterback and the offensive line against how the defensive line moves and (laughs) the linebackers, how they gauge what the quarterback's doing and the running backs out of the backfield. I'm getting pumped just thinking about it, Chris. Yeah, that's because you have the... uh arm length of a five-star recruit. <laughs> yeah, except I'm only five foot eleven, which doesn't do well. You know, it, there's a reason my nickname was Magilla growing up. But outside of that, guys, I'm going to be the first to admit that I struggle to know exactly what the hell I'm looking at outside of that box. I mean, Z wide receiver against Y wide receiver that flankers? Something about Joe Blewett said something once about a sale concept. I have no idea what the hell that is. Release techniques. Chris, I, I feel like I know how you must feel listening to yeah. other people talk X's and O's. Yeah, because I'm not an X's and O's guys, but we do have a lot of new faces on that offensive side of the ball. Well, exactly. When it comes to that stuff, you might as well be speaking them in Latin. But knowing when your beats have to battle, right? And so in the eternal struggle to provide our listeners with meaningful and, if nothing else, entertaining summertime content, we've brought in a ringer to give us a hand tonight. We have with us tonight Mr. Joe Marino from the Lockdown Bills Podcast. How are you doing, Joe? Hey, guys. I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> no, listen, this has been something we've, and I'm sure you've seen them, the tweets from people saying, oh, when are you guys going to collaborate? When are you going to do this? I... <laughs> finally happened. Here we are. Let's yeah. do it. Here we are. It's finally we're, happening. We're collaborating. Now, folks, for those of you who may not know Joe Marino, so he started off, you know, he runs the Lockdown Bills Podcast and website. And he also does work for the Draft Network. I mean, it's incredible how much time this guy spends talking about football. First of all, 
tell us a little bit about the Draft Network in general. I mean, the work you guys do over there is incredible. Yeah, you know what? I think I think it's a good time to talk about the Draft Network because it's the summer and we're still talking about the draft. And what we've created is a 365-day-a-year NFL draft website. Now, we talk college football. We talk NFL. You know, and not everything is about a right guard from Vanderbilt, you know, but we certainly have that as well. But what we've done is we've, we've really kind of put together a, what we think is a really good staff with a lot of great ideas in terms of the interactive features that you can find on our website with the mock draft machine and build your own big board. We've got a couple of daily podcasts, a really uh, aggressive uh, uh, amount of written content as well. And, and we talk about the draft all year long. And, and, and that really kind of mimics what an NFL team does. You know, they're scouting players. They're getting their watch list together for the season over the summer. And we're doing the same thing. And we're starting to introduce the crop of players that are going to be picked next April. And so it's it's a it's a really hardworking group of guys that cover the draft all year long. And we have a lot of fun doing it. Well, see, and I think that makes it perfect for, you know, in this kind of an environment and this kind of conversation that we're trying to have here tonight to bring someone like you in. Now, you do the Draft Dudes podcast uh, with Kyle Krabs, I believe. And just looking at, you know, listening to some of the shows, reading your work, I mean, following what you guys do over there is incredible. Then, so you guys were on the Lockdown Network with your podcast there, and now you've segued over into covering the Buffalo Bills for the Lockdown Network. How did you get your start with that? You know, for me, my, my passion's always been the Buffalo Bills. The reason I love football so much is the Buffalo Bills, and the reason I love the draft so much is because the Buffalo Bills needed to get some good new players, and I <laughs> wanted to know who they were going to be. And so uh, the, the fuel for everything that I do with my work is the Buffalo Bills. And, you know, I started off uh, writing for a website called buffalobillsdraft.com, and it was kind of the perfect marriage of Bills coverage and the draft. And I, uh, I, my career has kind of evolved as a draft guy. I think that's probably what most people know me as. But I always kind of wanted to have a little bit of a, of a voice in the Bills community as well, just because it was my passion. It's, it's the fuel for everything that I do. And... When I saw the opportunity was available to take the Lockdown Bills podcast and talk about the Bills on a daily basis for 20 to 30 minutes and give a, a bite-sized type podcast to, to Bills Mafia, it was something that I definitely want to take advantage of and, and always want to make sure that while I may be a draft guy, that the Bills side of me is something I always get a chance to do as well. That's awesome. I mean, it always feels good to scratch that itch. I know that's why we started this. Now, for every new guest, we have three pretty much stock questions we ask. You're Favorite moment as a fan, your least favorite moment as a fan, and your favorite adult beverage. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so, do I have do you do we go in order here? How does this work? However you want to answer it, sir. Whichever's okay, whichever's so my, least painful, I think it's usually the easiest place to start. The, well, okay. So my my favorite moment as a Buffalo Bills fan. Um. Man, there's so many different like superlatives that go with that. Mm -hmm. I think I'll I'll give you my best in-person moment as a Bills fan. I think it was that the 2017 Atlanta Falcons game where the Bills went on the road, went to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I think it was their second ever home game there. The Bills were two and one, had just lost to Carolina. Everyone was expecting the Bills to tank and and not win any games, and all of a sudden. The Bills went into the defending NFC champions' brand-new home stadium and beat them. And it was that moment where 
I remember walking back to my car just being like, like I, I, I felt like I was on cloud nine. Like I just was floating. I, I almost couldn't breathe with excitement about the new direction of the team under Sean McDermott, who was scratching and clawing and getting something out of a group of football players that nobody thought would win a game that year. So I think, I mean, that's kind of recent and I, and I could go, I can go, I can go far back. I could talk about Doug Flutie coming in and taking over and, and, and turning that team around in like the late nineties and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think that really stands out for me. Perfect. Now my most, my most painful moment as a bills fan. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I know it's hard to choose, right? I mean, you should see the look on Chris's face right now because when you mentioned that game, he and I were supposed to be in Atlanta at that game, and I got recruited by the now wife to go to a wedding that she was invited oh, no. to. Oh no, brother! If you invite me to a wedding in the fall, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I don't. I don't know what the you know the presidential campaign here in 2020 is coming up, and I sure as hell want to know what these candidates' plans are for banishing. Uh, weddings in the fall. That <laughs> we we could we could send out a state uh, just just a state by state. We could outlaw it. It'd be great for everybody. Yeah. Um, so my most painful. I don't know how you go with anything other than Music City Miracle. And for me, just kind of painting the picture. I'll never forget it. My my parents had went away on a beach trip, which is super weird. Not something <laughs> that happened very often at all in my family. Uh, just my, you know, didn't necessarily have, you know, gobs of money. And so for my parents to go away for the weekend, it was a very unique thing. And so they're out at this beach house. Cause I think my, actually, I think the reason it happened is my dad is, is in construction and he had a job to do. And as part of that job, they let him stay at the beach house that he was working on. And so him and my mom are out of town and me and my older brother are at home watching this game. And I was, I was all high on Doug Flutie and, and, and the Bills defense that year. And then Obviously, they tragically benched him for Rob Johnson. But I remember being on the phone with my mom and dad, so excited. Ah, oh, the Bills won the game, and, and they're going to advance, and all this type of stuff. And then we all know what happened. Oh, my God. That, 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 that phone call was a minute too soon. <sighs> and uh, just, to, just, the, the, just the feeling in your pit. My, my older brother, he punched a wall and like he ran, went on a, a jog that I'm not sure he's come back from yet. Still, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm not sure if you made it home, but I just remember that just the, the the true agony of defeat in that moment was something unlike anything I had experienced, and I don't think I've experienced since. And your uh, your favorite adult beverage? Ah, oh, that's so difficult because there's like different drinks that you want for for different times. Okay, right? so like, how about this? What what's your favorite drink when you're watching a football game? Uh you know this is this is going to be so unpopular. You ready for this? Sure. I don't mix football and alcohol. Okay. No, you know what, though? That makes sense, and you're not the only person to tell us that. Because I get it. You, you like to watch and analyze, and you're in, you're engaged. And I guess my thing is that when I watch, I'm engaged, but I'm also a stress drinker. <laughs> so <laughs> what plenty I, of drinking to be done, right? Plenty of drinking to be done. And it's, I mean, obviously our followers get to see it during our halftime shows from the stadium and from various places around here. I'm usually pretty fired up about these things. And so I can't help but drink when I get fired up about football. But I can totally see, you know, this, I can see the merit to not drinking when you're trying to fully analyze what it is you're seeing. You know? I'll go, I'll go with Jack and Diet. I think that's probably the most common drink that I'll go with. Uh, pretty much good for every occasion. I will say this, as I've been on a uh, t- 
tequila pineapple kick this summer. I got introduced to that in Nashville for the draft by one of my colleagues, the Draft Network, uh, Brad Kelly. And then my honeymoon was the weekend, the week after the draft. Uh, and so that was my drink of choice when I was in the Dominican. I'm a Dominican survivor. There proud you to go. Move. There uh, you go. Well, and congratulations and welcome back. Thank, now, thank you. Thank you. And so, yeah, tequila pineapple has been my, my drink this summer. But I think in my core, it's Jack and Diet. All right. Well, I think I think we can roll into some football conversation here. I mean, in our intro, our listeners heard that there are pundits, pundits banking on Josh Allen being the most improved rookie quarterback of last year's class. And I understand some of that. You know, you look at the athleticism he put on display. Just the, 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 you know, I know everyone gets caught up in the flash of, you know, the, oh, he jumped over Anthony Barr. The most important one is that he's the only one coming back with the same coaching staff. He's the only one coming back. Well, Freddie Kitchens, you could argue, was the offensive coordinator when Baker Mayfield really started to take off. But now he's a head coach. And so his, his, there's a process there that he wasn't privy to before that could change the landscape for him. And at the same time, you're right. There's a new offensive coordinator for every other one of these quarterbacks. So looking at this, I understand that there is a foundation there for Josh Allen. But when you look at the, you know, the flashy plays, what you get lost in is the fact that if you're talking about intangibles, this kid has it all. You know, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of contribution from the people around Josh Allen in order to get him there. But I, I, we're going to get into all of that, but I feel like this is a logical place to start with the conversation if you want to talk about the offense and the state of the roster. So when we look at it, you've got Josh Allen, Matt Barkley, and Tyree Jackson. Those are the three quarterbacks currently on the roster. I mean, heading into camp, it, <laughs> last year's passing game feels like something of a bad dream. I mean, here's some 2018 statistical notes for you. Josh Allen, second in quarterback pressure rate in 2018. He also, his completion percentage through, you know, from no yards to nine yards, 77%, even though the NFL average is 83. And those aren't hard, it's not a difficult area of the field to pass to. And he still was below average at it. And according to Optimum Scouting, through November, the passing offense statistically was one of the worst recorded and was on pace to replace the 1992 Seattle Seahawks as the worst since the 1970 merger in terms of adjusted yards per attempt. <laughs> I mean, it feels like a bad dream, Joe. <laughs> no, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I, um, I remember actually about week eight last year, I wrote an article for the Draft Network specifically on what the Bills can do to fix the offense in the, in the, in the offseason because I'm like, I don't know what's going to be different or better this year other than we're just going to come up with every statistic imaginable, imaginable that's going to tell us that the Bills offense is the worst the NFL has ever seen in an, in an offense in an era where offense has never been easier to uh, to be played. Right? Very disappointing. I think there's a lot of context that matters with this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, of and, course. And I think it starts, it starts probably with the offensive line where the Bills offensive line lost – Eric Wood, Richie Incognito, and Cordy Glenn, oh, and mean... did nothing to replace them, literally nothing, besides <laughs> drafting Wyatt Teller in the fifth round and uh, <sighs> signing Russell Bodine, who any Bengals fan will tell you is a, a player that struggles every time he's on the field. Nobody missed and, that guy. When Billy Price got drafted, No, no there, 
Usually when there's a move like that made, you know, whenever we sign a guy, my knee-jerk reaction is to go to the opposing team's, you know, websites and different forums <laughs> and to see what the reaction is. You know, is it positive? Is it negative? Nobody was going to miss Russell Bodine. But you're hitting the nail on the head here in the sense that they kind of sandbagged our offense to begin with. You know, they, they were kind of given a cinder block and told to tread water for a while. Like, look, we'll get to you in a while, but it's not going to be anytime soon, so good luck. And they well, performed about as well as you think they might. Well, and there's, I think there's two other really important factors to consider when you talk about how bad the Bills' offense was, particularly early in the season, is you've got three guys that all want to be the starter, and, and Peterman, Allen, and, and A.J. McCarron. And nobody's the guy, right? And you know Josh Allen winds up being the guy, and he's getting third-team reps most of the way up until later in the preseason. And so just the comfort, the timing, the volume of plays at, at, that he's comfortable running was really not uh, in oh, tune of course. until later in the season. And then lastly, the last thing I want to mention here is that his quarterback's coach was never an NFL quarterback coach before in his life. No. He, and... was, he was last quarterback's coach in 1990 at UTEP. <laughs> I thought that was a major, major disservice to Josh Allen in year one of his career, when everybody already knew he was a raw player coming out of Wyoming. Well, and now, to put it. him in this scenario was a very big disservice to and Josh And that's Allen. just it, is when you look at where we stand today, I mean, thank God we lived through that. I mean, we, we just got to telling our listeners before we brought you in. I mean, I, we survived it, which almost makes me feel stronger as a fan, because I feel like if I can survive that experience, I can live through anything. I mean, I'm right up there with cockroaches <laughs> and Twinkies as far as surviving the nuclear holocaust. So... When you look at who's currently on the depth chart, you've got three players. You've got Allen, who we know what we have in him. He's impressive athletically and is probably, I don't know, I want to say the best. He has the most upshot of any quarterback who's been on the roster in the last, I'll call it, six or seven years. But I think we're miles away from being able to just anoint him as a franchise quarterback because he's got a lot of growing up to do between the lines and in most aspects of the game. Then you've got Matt Barkley. Now, I've got to admit, it was it was fun watching Matt Barkley, having never set foot on the field in a Bills jersey, sling the rock all over the Jets. That came out of nowhere. I mean, I think one of the funnier parts of it was that Chris had bet me a Seagram's that week leading into the game. He would drink a Seagram's wine cooler because he didn't believe the Bills would score a touchdown in that game. And one of the the second play from scrimmage is a like a sixty yard <laughs> pass from Matt Barkley that no one saw coming, and then the third was like a twenty five yard yard McCoy touchdown run. That game was fun, but realistically, it was his second win as a quarterback in four years of NFL experience. I mean, when you look at SB Nation, they ranked all the backup quarterbacks in the NFL and listed him as a career backup with the caveat that. He literally was the bottom of the barrel of that category and deserved his own ranking called not completely depressing, I guess. <laughs> what, what is it you think we have in Matt Barkley? Well, the thing about Matt Barkley is if Matt Barkley was the player that we saw against the Jets, uh, he wouldn't have been without a job in 2017 and he <laughs> wouldn't have been available in the middle of the season for the Bills to sign off the street and start a game, right? Like, I mean, I think that what you have in Mar Matt Barkley is a player that's seen a lot of football you know, he's been on a lot of different teams and seen a lot of different uh, systems. And, and that matters, right? Just the comfort of, of having been exposed to it and being able to execute um, 
when needed. And hopefully we never see Matt Barkley take another snap for the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> but again, there's he, he just he isn't that player, right? He isn't that player against the Jets. He played out of his mind, and you you hope that you know you hope that his value to the team is from a mentorship perspective with Josh Allen and and using his experience dating back to USC and then his time in Philadelphia and Chicago to impart that peer level of of uh, advice and, and, and talking through situations that you don't really get from, you know, a coach to player relationship. So, uh, you know, Matt Barkley is, is, he is what he is in terms of a backup. And, you know, the offense is going to look a lot different if he has to step on the field. And I think it's going to be important this preseason to, for the bills to engineer an offense that is, is capable of running with Matt Barkley because it'll be different than what Josh Allen can do because their their skill sets could not be more different. I mean, in every way imaginable, they're different football players. But, you know, it's one of those things where we've seen teams overcome their starting quarterback going down and still being able to compete. So with the Minnesota Vikings, I hear recently, they, they, they were down to their, their third quarterback and still found a way to make the playoffs with Case Keenum. And, and you've seen other teams that their quarterbacks go down and, and it's it. They're, they're, they're toast. And so you want to feel some level of, of comfort with Matt Barkley, but he's not the player that we saw against the Jets. Oh, absolutely not. And I think that that's interesting when you talk about the third guy on the, on the depth chart, uh, when you're talking about Jackson. Now, Tyree Jackson, he's an unknown, and I'm, I'm praying. If we have to see him on the field at any point during next season, something has gone cataclysmically wrong. I mean, we're talking end of the, we're talking Ghostbusters, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Like, that's what we're looking at if he's on the field for the Buffalo Bills. But when you look at what he is as a quarterback prospect, he's impressive. He's an athlete. And you could make the argument that if Josh Allen was Legos, he would be those Tyco building blocks, you know, the Chinese knockoffs. Because when you look at their skill sets, he's got the big frame, the athletic ability to you know scramble around and sort of move his throwing platform, but not a whole lot. It, he has some deep ball talent. You could argue they drafted him to potentially in the future have a backup that could mirror his skill set, so that they wouldn't have to, you know, they wouldn't be designing two totally different offenses interchangeably between Josh Allen and whoever backs him up. So with that said, yeah. I, there is no. I saw some lunatic pen an article about Josh Allen being benched during the 2019 season. If he has any struggles, and if and when that might occur. When you look at this group of quarterbacks, I don't know that anyone on this team gives the Buffalo Bills a better chance to win football games at any point in 2019, except for Josh Allen. Yeah, I, I don't even know why we would even be considering anyone else stepping on the field. Thank I mean, jo jo Josh Allen's the guy, right? I mean, he, he's the guy. He's the guy you you parted with a lot of assets to go up and get. Uh, and he's won the locker room, and he's shown enough late last season to inspire some optimism, and all indications are that he's worked very hard. He's been the guy from day one this year. And there's, you know, with, with the personnel changes and, and just the experience that he has now under his belt, there's going to be a higher level of comfort that exists for Josh Allen in year two. So now there's some expectations now for him to grow and get better and, and become a better football player than he was uh, in, when you examine 2018 in totality. But there's no reason to talk about any direction at quarterback right now other than Josh Allen.
No, absolutely not. And I mean, this offense is only going to go as far as he can take them in 2019. There is no Nick Foles in the building. There's no, you know, if, if something happens to him or if he's not as effective as everyone wants to be, it doesn't matter. He's the guy until he's not the guy, and there's nobody else on this roster who can take us farther. So he's going to need some help from that supporting cast. And so as we kind of segue into just breaking the rest of it down, I look at the tight ends. And I got to tell you, I, this is where I, I'm lending myself to your, your background and your, I guess, expertise. Because when I look at our tight end depth chart, I don't even know what to make of this. You have the now injured and probably going to start camp on the pup list, uh, Tyler Croft. You have Lee Smith, veteran, who's a blocking specialist. You've got Jason Kroon, who, I mean, you can say what you want. He was the most productive receiver out of our tight end group, but didn't score a touchdown. He's got a couple flashes and really not a whole lot else. And then you've got a bunch of guys who are even more unknowns. Now, some 2018 statistics on this group. Five and a half targets per game to the tight end position and 55 total receptions. Let's compare that to Travis Kelsey, who has four straight years of 70 or more receptions. I mean, it blows my mind that he somehow outperformed our entire tight end staff. One touchdown for the entire position group. One. I mean, it blows my mind. You can't get worse than what we saw out of this group last season. Wildly unproductive. And yes, you can try to blame some of that on the quarterback and some of that on the offensive coordinator. If any of the guys that we put out there in 2018 to play tight end for us were great, our quarterback would have at least tried to find them. But if you look at the targets and how they got spread out, our tight ends accumulated for just 88 total targets. Travis Kelsey had 150. Zach Ertz had 156. I'm sorry, if we had a legitimate number... Legitimate NFL starting tight end on the roster last year, someone would have been trying to throw them the football. So now you look at what we're coming into this year with, and I mean, it's, I, I got to ask you, what what do you make of this mixed bag of skill sets? Well, you know, I think even, even if Tyler Croft was healthy right now, I don't think you look at tight end as a position of strength for this football team. It's probably the weakest overall group on the entire roster, and there's no defensive coordinator in the NFL that is losing sleep over stopping Tyler Croft as your starting <laughs> tight end. So no. he's, he's a middling player that has baseline skills across the board, but he's not, there's nothing dynamic about him. And obviously him being injured really takes away from the Bills having an experienced pass-catching type tight end. I know Lee Smith is in the mix. He's basically a six offensive lineman who's going to handle very basic functions as a receiver. So – you know, you, you've lost your somewhat of a known commodity as a receiving threat at tight end with Tyler Croft breaking his his foot, the same foot he broke last year that cost him 11 games. So, uh, you know, it's questionable whether or not he's going to be available for the start of the season. Even if he is, you know he's not going to be anywhere near game shape and certainly missed a lot of time in terms of building chemistry with the rest of the offense, specifically Josh Allen. No. So now you look at the rest of this group, and right, you, your eyes go to Dawson Knox, a third-round pick. And there's an exciting athletic skill set that exists with Dawson Knox. I mean, he's, he's in terms of quickness, speed, uh, ability to jump, all that stuff is there, except for he was used in a Mickey Mouse offense at Ole Miss. Well, that was going to be one of the, that was going to be one of the questions I had for you. And I'm glad that you started there because this is one of the, I mean, this is the crux of the reason why I defer to someone like you. This is, you're the perfect person for me to be having this conversation with right now, 
because I don't know what to make of a guy like Dawson Knox. You're talking about, I mean, I read all of your guys' work over there at the Draft Network about Dawson Knox, trying to make myself feel better about the pick. And you guys all agreed that he has this athletic upside and that he's got, he showed flashes of blocking potentially, showed, what, what did he have, 18 receptions? Yeah. That, that's by default, I'd say you can blame the offensive coordinator because he's, I mean, I, I'm an Alabama guy. I see old men. That's that, that's what would happen. You know, every Sunday I drink beer and I rant about what I would do and what I think this offensive coordinator should be doing. Ask Chris. He has to watch games with me. Just telling everybody, well, you should have done this and you should have called that. The Ole Miss offense is what would happen if you turned me loose with an offensive coordinator job at the collegiate level. Well, so the thing with Austin Knox is we actually had a chance to interview him over at the Draft Network uh, uh, for a podcast, and then also we, we got a chance to talk with him at the Combine. And he'll tell you he only ran three routes <laughs> at, 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 for Ole Miss, and that's that's going to be a lot different uh, in Ryan Dable's offense. And he's got a big jump ahead of him. He's recruited out of high school as a quarterback, and he switches over to tight end in the SEC. And you saw the flashes, and even, even with the flashes, though, you saw some low lights in terms of his consistency catching mm-hmm. the football and his technique catching the football – uh, and, and there's a lot of variance. And when you have a small sample size of receptions and really targets to evaluate from, the variance becomes all that more important to criticize because you just don't have a big enough sample size to say that they aren't big issues. Uh, and so he's got a lot of room to grow. And, like, the, the challenging thing with tight ends is that even the best tight end prospects don't come in and make immediate impacts. And o- now you have a guy O.J. Howard might be the, one of the biggest examples of that. I mean, the guy, right. he killed Clemson on the national stage. Killed. What you saw was a guy who just, he showed everything that you want in a tight end. But there again, tight end is a position that's fluid. And you have guys, I mean, when you see some of the most productive tight ends, they were drafted in the second round or later. Whereas these first round tight ends like the Eric Ebrons and the O.J. Howards of the world tend to really struggle. And so, and not struggle, but struggle to live up to the draft position, I guess. And as a draft guy, I'm sure you can appreciate that. So when I look at you know, Dawson Knox and I look at the rest of the class around him, are we kind of hitching our wagons to this idea that Knox is going to emerge in training camp? I mean, is that what we're trying to, if, if I'm going to get excited about this position group? Because I look at what's behind him. You know, you've got, oh, I mean, I made a list here. I've got Keith Tilbridge, who... Out of Louisville, he's a big guy, but he's part of a wonky offense that doesn't really work. With I mean, you need a very special kind of system to make a guy like that work. He's not f- super fast. He's not super athletic. He's not an imposing blocker. The Tim Sweeney, who was a seventh round draft pick, who I think might be, I mean, by f- they drafted him, so maybe he's got a shot to make the roster, but I don't know that he can contribute offensively. And this Nate Becker kid out of Miami, Ohio, who I've heard good things about, but again, he only caught 19 balls. So are we all hitching our wagons to this idea that Knox, I guess, is the guy we're all pulling for come training camp to show that he belongs in the NFL? Well, I think you made the point there. There's not a whole lot lot else to cling to. So at least in in Knox, you've got a physical skill set that's exciting. If you can can use him in ways that – really takes the thinking out of it and, and accentuates his athleticism. Just ask him to run the seam and care, you know, see if he can create separation 
by bending his stem and running away from a safety or a linebacker and giving Josh Allen a target over the middle of the field or leaking him out in space on a rollout or something like that. I think that's what you're looking for. And it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you hope that tight end production is better this coming season because, you know, the, the, the floor has already been set very, very low. But with Tyler Croft's injury, it, it creates a lot of question marks. And even like I mentioned to start off this conversation, even if Tyler Croft was healthy, it's still not a position of strength by any means. Oh, no. So this, I mean, this position battle is one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on with almost held breath because you just have to hope at this point that something, I mean, for all the positivity about the offense, this is a weak spot. This is a spot where we have one NFL caliber player in my mind. And everybody else is kind of a relative unknown commodity. I mean, there, there's just not enough tape out there on any of these guys to say that they can come in and contribute the way a legitimate number one tight end would. And so that's going to dictate a lot of what we want to see out of the offense because in watching Brian Dable at, at Alabama, he had multiple good tight ends at his disposal and he utilized them a lot. You know, guys like Irv Smith Jr., who you saw get drafted a little bit higher than I think people thought he would. It's stuff like that where you, I don't know, I look at what we have here and it's hard to try to figure it out, but it's a position where there's really not a whole lot of NFL, proven NFL caliber talent, which differs wildly from the position group that we're going to talk about next, which is the running back and fullback position. This, I don't even know what to do here. I mean, when you run it down, you've got LaShawn McCoy, Frank Gore, TJ Yeldon, Devin Singletary. Marcus Murphy, Senoris Perry, Christian Wade, and Patrick DeMarco. Now, as far as stats go from last season, the only one that I need to see is that LaShawn McCoy averaged 2.0 yards after contact, which is the lowest of his entire career. If you're asking me how many people are going to start here, I have no idea. I mean, how many legitimate NFL starters we have on the roster? I don't know. I mean, there's a mix there, and it's an interesting one of different talents and how they kind of fit together, but I see more questions than I see answers. You look at McCoy. Before 2018, I think you'd be crazy to claim that anybody else would be leading the Bills' backfield going forward. But he's coming off his worst pro season ever. And now he's in the dreaded over 30 club. I mean, Joe, that's that's a significant thing, right? It is. And, and you know, here's the thing about LaShawn McCoy is, is he is coming off of a, of a down season. I mean, the offensive line was was obviously very poor. He was banged up a little bit. You had uh, you had four different starting quarterbacks, and you know basically if you're a defense, you're saying, well, LaShawn McCoy is not going to beat me, and and certainly you know if you're going to lose to the Buffalo Bills, it's going to be because those quarterbacks beat you. And so I, I think that there's something to be said about just his role and how difficult it would have been for really any running back to be successful last year in the Bills' offense. And so. I, I do have some optimism. You know, if he's healthy, you know, LaShawn McCoy is a prideful guy. You know he wants to get those 12,000 career rushing yards. He's got Frank Gore in the fray now, a, a friend of his, which I think it's one of those iron sharpens iron type things. And, you know, maybe having Gore in the mix gets you the most out of LaShawn McCoy in terms of what's left in the tank. But the Bills have been very committed to LaShawn McCoy specifically for this season. They've had, you know, they've been rumors about them looking to trade him, but every at every step along the way, dating back to 2017, the Bills have denied and, and been very committal to LaShawn McCoy. I think they want him part of the mix this year, and hopefully all of the things that we just talked about as being issues last year are no longer part of the, of, of the problem, and 
you get whatever's left in the tank of uh, of LaShawn McCoy at age, you know what, almost 31 now. I mean, you you just mentioned Frank Gore. So we were cracking jokes about the Bills having the oldest running back room back when Chris Ivory was still here, about the oldest running back room and how it was like that uh, movie with Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine and they were going on one last heist before they all get too old and have to be put into the nursing home. Um, <laughs> if Frank Gore makes the final 53... Joe, honestly, the team could use the advertising shtick that Buffalo is home to two of the eight wonders of the world, Niagara Falls and a 36-year-old running back that is somehow not only durable, but coming off an almost career high in yards per carry. I I don't understand it. (laughs) I don't know what keeps this guy going. His role, though, is hard to see on this roster. I mean, it was a confusing signing when they made it, and when you see what they've done at the position afterwards, it gets a little bit more confusing afterwards. I mean, it's, he's essentially a one-cut runner who's good for short distances at this point. Maybe there's room for that depending on what the blocking scheme is, which we are going to get into in a minute. But right now, it's hard to see how he fits in with the youth around him. I, I am actually a very big fan of this pickup for the Bills, getting Frank Gore really? as part of the mix. Uh, you know, like you said, he mentioned 4.6 yards per carry. 3.29 yards per uh, per carry after contact last year. That's the most that he's averaged since his rookie season. It's Are you trying to tell me time. he's getting stronger as he's getting older? He might be. I mean, it's, it, it, as a rookie, he had 3.61 yards after contact. 2018, he had 3.29. He's never had another year of his career where he's had more than three. So this is a player who was able to be productive behind a very bad Miami Dolphins offensive line last year with a similarly bad quarterback situation. And so I have a lot of respect for Frank Gore, especially coming into a season where you lose Kyle Williams, right? You're never going to be able to replace Kyle Williams, but there's a leadership factor that exists within Frank Gore that I think helps replace some of that. Another thing that I really like about the Frank Gore signing other outside of that I think he can still play and that he complicates compliments LaShawn McCoy very well is that you have Josh Allen in year two of his career. Having a stable of veteran backs like McCoy and Gore next to him in the backfield is going to be very meaningful because you know they're going to be very consistent and pass pro. And the Bills have been very deliberate about going out and improving the protection around Josh Allen, and that extends to the backfield and bringing in Frank Gore as part of the mix who's going to be reliable in that regard and knowing that these backs in McCoy and Gore they're going to be where they're supposed to do, doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that, to me, helps Josh Allen. The Bills are probably going to have to rebuild this entire backfield next year. But for year two with Josh Allen, it's good that he has veterans at his disposal and he'll be better equipped for a brand-new backfield in year three in 2020. I'm not going to lie. I don't want you to be offended when I say this, but I'm still over here thinking about what you said about yards after contact because I'm a 34-year-old whose back hurts if I fall asleep on the couch. You're telling me a thirty, a thirty-five-year-old, more yards per, more yards after contact than he had in his entire career. It boggles the mind. So I look at what else is left here, and to your point about pass protection. Now here's where things that you know, they bring in Yeldon. Now Yeldon is funny because he's a player that I wanted the team to draft when he was eligible. And then I wanted him in free agency, but now that he's here, I'm not sure exactly what the utilization looks like for him. His receptions per game is a full catch and a half higher than any running back on the roster last season, which underscores the fact that he's he can be utilized as a receiving option, 
But he's averaged just one and a half rushing touchdowns per year for his entire career. I mean, he's just not a guy who you teams rely on to run anywhere near the end zone. And he's not a guy who's proven that he has that second gear to find pay dirt. So you kind of got to take what you have in him. And then when I look at the rest of this, a guy like Yeldon being on the roster makes sense. You've got Singletary, who's a rookie, who I'm going to pick your brain about in a second. But you've got Murphy, Perry, and Wade fleshing out this running back depth chart. First of all, Murphy, terrible in pass protection. He nearly got Josh Allen killed on multiple occasions last year. He's just not a good pass blocker, and I really had hope for him coming into last season, but I feel like he just failed to capitalize on the opportunities that they gave him. Perry, he's interesting because he's the only running back with special teams experience, but has no career, you know, significant career utilization on offense. And then Wade. The, the fact that Christian Wade is here from rugby is going to... He's going to make the practice squad because apparently they have an exemption made for those guys, which means I'm going to have to chug a Seagram's because I made a bet with one of our listeners over in England, I believe it is. He's a long-term project and a long shot to ever see an NFL field. So when you look at that cast behind him, Yeldon clearly has the, I guess, an inside track. I mean, when you look historically, the Bills have kept four running backs. Wouldn't you say Yeldon at least has a leg up in that? I'm going to toss a wet blanket over your ideas on Yeldon here because the more I've thought about this and the more I've dug into it, I don't know that there's really a course for Yeldon making this football team. You're talking about him being the fourth running back on the roster, and your fourth running back has to play special teams. Thank you. TJ Yeldon's been, he's been in the league since 2015, and he has never played a special team snap. That is very, very concerning to me. What? And then you also have to think about this Jacksonville Jaguars team that he came from. The identity is running the football. And Leonard Fournette has not necessarily proven to be a very reliable player since they took him very high in the draft a few years ago. They replaced all of the backups. They got they they, they signed Thomas Rawls, uh, Alfred Blue, and Benny Cunningham this offseason and drafted Ryquell Armstead. Why didn't they want T.J. Yeldon to be part of the mix? Why did they bring in a guy like Carlos Hyde when T.J. Yeldon was already in the mix? My concerns with T.J. Yeldon are he doesn't help you on special teams, and the team that knows him best, who had a clear need at backup running back, let him walk. You know what? And that's a that, that's an that's a great point because I'm sitting here looking at this. When you look at the overall makeup of the group, one of the glaring things that sticks out to you is that historically, for a team that keeps four running backs, only Senoris Perry has special teams experience. Not McCoy, not Gore, not the kid they drafted in the third round in Devin Singletary. I mean, that pick, Joe, I'm not kidding. We're on a live stream broadcast of the draft from Batavia Downs over there at the casino. And I'm talking pre-pick about how this is the one pick that if they hit a home run on, or at least they get a solid pick, I would declare this draft a win. Nothing made me face plant harder. I flipped my tablet and just put my head down. Over the pick of Singletary, but I'm coming around on it. But it's still, you're not going to cut that guy. You took him in the third round for a reason. So now the question becomes, where do all these guys slot in since nobody has special teams experience outside of Perry? I mean, th- there's no way they're going to forego a special teams running back, is there? Well, I think you, you, you kind of hinted at it there. I think that we need to talk about Sonoris Perry or Sonoris Perry as a realistic option to make this football team. 
over 300 special team snaps last year, 258 special team snaps in 2017. He's a guy, if you, the back the back half of your roster, the bottom of the barrel roster guys, especially at positions like running back, when you have Gore and McCoy and Singletary who are going to make the football team, you've got to be able to play teams. And in Sinoris in Perry, you have a player that's proven in that capacity. And I, I really think that if you're talking about RB4 for the Bills, Perry, to me, is the guy that I expect to make the team. A guy like TJ Yeldon, I get that he has some pass catching upside and all that type of stuff. I talked about it, some of his concerns. But I think you can sign TJ Yeldon or a player like him every single offseason. Well, I think the value comes from the proven special teams ability of Sonoris Perry. And that's what's crazy about this, is that we're looking at a ton of NFL caliber talent, but because none of them have concrete bell cow running back upside, there's a legitimate battle to be had here. It's going to be, I think, one of the more interesting battles come training camp. Because even if McCoy shows well, he's you're talking about a guy who's going to need a backup. It's going to be interesting to see if Gore can hold off you know, if Singletary shows well enough, maybe they decide a guy like Gore is expendable. Or maybe they decide to roll with you know Singletary, Gore, McCoy, let a guy like Yeldon go, and keep Perry. It's going to be incredibly interesting to watch how that happens. Because, I mean, right there, there is no set depth chart outside of LaShawn McCoy, and even his position as one is kind of shaky. Looking at the wide receiver side of things, because that's one of these other positions here, much like tight end, that just boggles me. I don't know a whole lot about wide receivers. I just don't understand a lot of the nuance that goes into playing wide receiver, and I'm rarely ever paying attention to it on Sundays. I'll admit that. (laughs) If that makes me a bad fan, so be it. But when I look at what we had in 2018, ninth highest drop percentage in the NFL, according to Pro Football Focus. But we had Robert Foster with uh, 20.3 yards, which was his average depth of target. Now, take, Chris, take into account the fact that John Brown, he's, he, the story on John Brown is that he's a proven deep threat in the NFL. His average depth of target was only 18.3 yards. And the Bills were one of four teams to have an average of 2.8 yards or less of separation per target in 2018. So, we're coming off a year where we had a group of wide receivers who couldn't really do anything well. You couldn't catch the ball. You couldn't get separation. So you've re- and I think part of that stems from their, you know, you saw what they made our team of. They had Kelvin Benjamin and Andre Holmes. And I think their idea going into 2018 was we're going to get some big physical wide receivers and see if that doesn't give a catch radius big enough for Josh Allen to produce with them. And they found out that that didn't work brutally found out that that didn't work. I mean, Kelvin Benjamin's just laziness. And Andre Holmes, just he just didn't have the talent that his size might dictate a guy like him should have. So you saw them completely reverse course this year. And what you have is a lot of guys, they brought in guys who might not be the most physically imposing wide receivers, but you saw them bring in some new faces who, you know, some of whom are very good at getting separation. Now, to the trained eye like yourself, when you're talking about scouting and when you're talking about talent evaluation at the wide receiver position, what do we have here in this mixed bag of talents at wide receiver? Well, I think you made a good point there that it's a different style of room compared to what the Bills started with last year. Andre Holmes and Calvin Benjamin being the top two guys and them being you know bigger guys that supposedly have good catch radiuses. And I think it's a lesson learned that even Carolina, the Panthers, have learned with Cam Newton. Cam Newton and Josh Allen are both high-variance passers. 
They're not the most consistent with their ball placement. And Carolina had Devin Funches and Calvin Benjamin. Well, now they have DJ Moore and Torrey Smith and Curtis Samuel uh, and, and Jarris Wright and, and guys that can separate. And so I think what the NFL has collectively learned over the last few years is that the best thing for a quarterback with high variance with his accuracy is guys that can separate and get open. And so you saw the Bills go out and add Cole Beasley and John Brown to the mix that already included Zay Jones and Robert Foster. All of those guys are guys that are quick, that can run routes and separate and, and can really just win based on their ability to get in and out of breaks fluidly. And I think that's going to be great for Josh Allen. What I get really excited about is I know a lot of people it, it, with Bills fans and stuff, they ask me questions about how do all of these players work together? And, you know, if you if Zay Jones is, is a really good slot receiver, well, where does Cole Beasley fit into the mix? The Bills went empty a lot last year, and they're going to go empty a lot again in this, this year because what it does is two things. First of all, when you're empty and you have five receivers, chances are the defense is going to play man coverage. And when you're in man coverage, there's no eyes in the backfield. And when there's no eyes in the backfield, it creates opportunities for Josh Allen to take off with the football, and it really simplifies his reads. He can he can work uh, he can survey the defense. If he doesn't like what he sees, there's nobody that's squatting in a zone that's in a favorable position to tackle him. And so now you have two guys in Robert Foster and John Brown that are vertical guys that can lift coverage and really extend the defense vertically. And what that does is it opens up opportunities for guys like Zay Jones and Cole Beasley, who are detailed route runners, to take advantage of that space underneath. It creates more favorable opportunities to get your tight ends involved. But now I, have a, favorable op- I hate to cut you off, but I have a, I have a legitimate question, and I want to I get to it before you just – before we blow past this, it's important for me to ask this. Okay. As a skeptic, okay, I feel like – because I'm, I'm, I'm a beleaguered Bills fan. We've been season ticket holders for almost a decade now. I'm coming up on just – just years and years and years of optimism and heartbreak followed by more optimism and heartbreak. When you look at the players that make up this depth chart, you're talking about how, okay, we potentially have two guys on the outside who can lift the roof off a of defense, and you've got guys who can work underneath. All but one or two of the culprits of last year's performance are still here on the roster. So philosophically, what new is being brought to the table that we didn't try to do last year that can help Bills fans believe that the production of this group is going to be different next year. Well, well, I think I think you saw that shift start to happen last year when the Bills released Andre Holmes and Kevin Kelvin Benjamin like on the same day, and all of a sudden Robert Foster's more involved, Zay Jones is more involved, Isaiah McKenzie, a player who I don't think has any any desirable traits to be in the NFL other than he has some quickness. He got involved, and the spacing of the offense got better, and the Bills offense. From that Jets game on, when those players were the core of the group and not the Holmes and the Benjamins, things got better. And and I think that will continue to evolve in 2019 when you have even more talent that can separate and create space in Brown and having Foster in that role. And obviously having Beasley was one of the best separation guys in the entire NFL. So what I would say to inspire optimism is you saw it happen last year with worse personnel. And with Josh Allen, who's coming off injury, now Josh Allen's the guy from day one. And the volume of plays at his disposal, the comfort in terms of surveying the entire field and knowing where his outlets and checkdowns and and the progressions truly are, it has to be that much greater. You said it earlier. You talked about the intangibles and the work ethic of Josh Allen. It's not going to be from a lack of trying that this offense doesn't work in 2019. That's And you know what? That's fair. 
That's a fair point because he's going to get in the work with these guys. And so when you're talking about the depth chart as a whole and we're going into training camp and we're looking at what we're going to see when camp starts, there's a couple guys who stand out to me. Now, first of all, there's Cole Beasley. I know I've heard everyone. I was on a cruise. I was on a cruise with my wife and ran into a bunch of football fans, one of whom was a Cowboys fan. And they were like, oh, congratulations. You won the Super Bowl for signing Cole Beasley. And they were heckling me. But we got into a legitimate conversation because, listen, I, I'm a troll at heart. I can handle it. So we had a conversation and inevitably ended up spending like an hour or two just talking about football. Beasley's, according to him, a selfish guy. But when you're a wide receiver, you want a selfish guy. You want a guy who wants the ball. And when I look at what Beasley's done in the field, yes, he's only had two 100-yard games in seven seasons. Which is kind of funny when you think about Foster in half a season you know, maybe a little bit more, had four 90-plus yard games. But when you look at what he put up last year for the Cowboys in an offense that really didn't have a whole lot of rhythm early on until they traded for uh, the wide receiver from, well, what was it? Amari Cooper. Amari Cooper. 46 of his 69 catches in 2018 were from zero to seven and a half yards deep from the line of scrimmage. So you think back to that Allen stat of how poor he was below average in that area. You can't fault the guy if nobody's open. I mean, look at the tight end utilization. It just wasn't there. That's usually where you'd expect those kind of guys to eat against seam routes and against slower linebackers. And the fact that that didn't happen speaks to the fact that there wasn't a talent there to get the ball to. Then you've got uh, Duke Williams. I, I get it. You know, he's, He was the leading receiver in the CFL. When you look at the guys he's competing with, he's bigger, he's faster, Maybe not faster, but he's got just a more imposing physical stature than all of the the Ray Ray McLeods of the roster. And the fact that he's got experience, that's something that no one else behind him on the depth chart has, even if it's not in NFL football. And then you got Andre Roberts. Not a threat as a wide receiver, but a Pro Bowl caliber returner. And we touched on this with the running backs. There's If you're going to make it as a depth player in the NFL, you have to have some special teams utility. So I guess one of the questions I want to open up to you, if you were to ask me, there are already five wide receivers on this team that they have to keep for either financial reasons or fit reasons in uh, Roberts, Zay, Foster, Beasley, and Brown. If the team does decide to keep six on the roster, is it fair of me to say that Duke Williams has the inside track or is there somebody else out there that you like? No, I think this is that's that's a good point there, and I've I've had some debates in my head about who that sixth guy would be. What Duke Williams does is offers them a different receiver. Five guys that we all kind of perceive as is locks to make the roster. Uh, it gives them a size element, a guy that uh, would probably be a good blocker in the run game or in the quick game. They're trying to set up uh, different types of opportunities in the screen game, and, and should be able to help you in special teams. And so. Him being a different type of player gives him a chance. I know Victor Bolden, you know, he's a player that seems like if you look back at camp when, you know, the Bills had a lot of different receivers that were out for whatever reason, Victor Bolden seemed to get a lot of opportunities to, to get run with, with, the, with the starters. And so that leads me to believe that he's in play. And then Ray Ray McLeod's not a player that I, I like a ton. I don't think he's a good ball handler. I don't think he has any great physical traits. But he's a player that they drafted. And, and that, off, that oftentimes means something when you're trying to sort out who's going to make the roster and who won't. So uh, if the Bills do keep six receivers, I think those are the three with the upper hand. But I, I definitely wouldn't sleep on Victor Bolden. 
that, hey, there's a name. I, honestly, I've been giving him no credence. I'm going to have to start looking into that more. I mean, ultimately, when we look at this group, it's an unknown as to whether or not the Bills are going to try to keep five or six wide receivers. I think a lot of that's going to be tied into, because again, there's a numbers game that you got to play here. I mean, that's why I wonder, Patrick DeMarco, is he a guy who's long for this roster? I don't know, because he's, LaShawn McCoy has made most fullbacks irrelevant because he's just got that improvisational style. And the fact that he's only caught, what, two passes, three passes per year? So there's a numbers game between fullback, tight end, wide receiver. Even if they do keep six, we already have five guys here who I think you you believe could fit and be almost roster locks. So then it's just going to come down to whoever can build the quickest rapport with Josh Allen. And that's what it comes down to. I think that's why you see Victor Bolden getting run with the ones. I think it's why you see Duke Williams get run with the ones. And I think you're going to see more and more of that throughout camp because that's going to be a focal point is finding out which one of these other guys can step up and be that, you know, that other element that Josh Allen clicks with. And I think that that's going to go a long way to settling the depth chart here and something that everyone needs to be paying attention to when camp starts. Oh, boy. There's one position left, Joe. One position left, and it happens to be my favorite, the offensive line. And it doesn't hurt that no position on the roster could look any different. And for good reason. You, you look back to 2018 and what this team got out of our offensive line. According to Pro Football Focus, they posted the second worst run blocking grade in the entire NFL. The whole, the whole NFL. I mean, do, do, Arizona, everyone wants to know what happened. To, if you drafted, uh, what's it, David, uh, what, David Johnson? The running back? Yeah, who's the yeah, running back? David, David Johnson. Johnson. And everyone wondered why he fell off a cliff. It's because their offensive line was just slightly worse than the Buffalo Bills. So for LaShawn McCoy owners, there you go. There, I, I digress. It, 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 this, this whole conversation is going to be painful for me. 12th in quarterback hits allowed and 14th in sacks given up. And LaShawn McCoy, 1.2 yards before contact. It's a career low. He's never been touched before in his career on an average of 1.2 yards after receiving the ball. I mean, think about how much we... I started asking the question about midseason. It's like, you know, last year we ran a lot. You know, you saw a lot of, like, shotgun draws to LaShawn McCoy because it gave him time to see how plays were, you know, kind of how the offensive line was blocking in front of him, where his gaps might come from. And he'd let his improvisation take over, and he would just find a hole and hit it and break out into the open for extra yardage. That didn't happen at all last year. And to your point, the Bills eventually just stopped stopped running out of anything. They, they started going empty set a lot. <laughs> Can we agree that that was the fault of the offensive line? Yeah, absolutely, right? <laughs> I mean, you have, you have a group of, of players in last year's offensive line that I mean, outside of Deion Dawkins, none of those guys might be on the roster this year. And, and so you, you saw Brandon Bean being very aggressive in free agency. I think he signed six unrestricted free agents at offensive line. He drafted Cody Ford in the second round. There was a very intentional effort here to get guys that can move bodies, guys that have an edge. You heard Brandon Bean say that in his press conferences. He's looking guys that, that have an edge that can create that space and give them a chance to be a consistent team that runs football well. Well, and that's the thing. When you look at what we're bringing to camp this year, last year we only had 10 players in the offensive line. Three of them 
Not a single NFL start between them, and only one of them was a draft pick. And to your point earlier, it was a late-round pick. So you're not putting a significant effort into trying to upgrade that. This year, they brought 15. I mean, obviously, they've recognized where the hole, the biggest hole in their offense was. So as we work our way around the offensive line, I think it's an interesting group of talents, and I want to break them down into three categories. We're going to start off with the centers. I mean, to me, barring any kind of catastrophe, there shouldn't be any question who's starting here. It's Mitch Morse. I mean, you paid that guy a ton of money in 2019's free agency. He's only allowed four sacks, had the uh, pro football focus's second best pa- uh, pass blocking grade. And when you look at what he is, his size and his anchor are great in pass protection. And in run blocking, he's not a high-end run blocking center. He wins more with athleticism, just his ability to beat a man to a spot and get in his way, more than he does power and just forcing a defensive tackle off the ball. But that's okay. I mean, Eric Wood wasn't... Chris, was Eric Wood a road grader as a center? No. No. He was... But he was athletic and he could move around. And I'd argue that this guy... I shouldn't even argue. It's not an argument. This guy's a much better pass protector than Eric Wood probably was, regardless of what the scheme is. And his injury history, though, that's the one thing I would say here, means that a team would be foolish not to have a solid backup in place, which explains why Bodine and Spencer Long are both still here. Now, when you look at this position, what do you make of the fight to be center number two? Well, you know what's interesting is that the the two of the players that they brought in, and Spencer Long, as well as uh, John Feliciano, both of those guys could play center as well. And so you have three guys that you feel comfortable snapping right there. And I still haven't even mentioned Russell Bodine or Jeremiah Searles, who could play all five spots. And so what the Bills have at, at their interior offensive line is, is guys that are interchangeable. And that way, you know, look, you paid, you made Mitch Morse the highest paid center in NFL history. He's going to be the guy. That's the one thing we know about this offensive line is that he's the guy. But as you pointed out, there is a, a lengthy injury history to be mindful of. But if he were to go down, you have four experienced guys that have snapped the ball in the NFL that you feel comfortable stepping in. So I think the Bills did a good job with their interior offensive line of getting guys that are interchangeable that can both play center and guard. And now here's where I want to defer to you and your ability to just your knowledge of film and just study of the players and their skill sets. Mitch Morse has spent his entire career playing in a zone-based blocking scheme. Now I have no clue. I mean, it's, you couldn't, I couldn't tell you what Brian Dable's scheme was supposed to be last year because it was so poorly executed across just across the entire line of scrimmage. And there was a lot of turnover from last year to this year. Watching him at Alabama, I always took him for more of a power guy. So to see that they made such a significant investment in a guy who plays primarily in a zone blocking scheme, what do you think that means for the whole... I mean, am I reading the tea leaves correctly here? I feel like you're almost obligated then if you've made that kind of investment... You're not going to try to round peg square hole this guy. You're going to play to his strengths, correct? Well, yeah, and I think I think the the Bills' rushing offense is pretty multiple. I wouldn't say that it's strictly a gap power or mm-hmm. inside outside zone. I think you're going to see components of both of those things mixed together. And uh, Mitch Morse is an athletic guy, and I think what his ability to move, get him out involved on longer poles, get him up on the second level as a vertical blocker, picking up backers and creating space and to your point, he's not a road grader, but you don't need that as a center. You need a guy that can chip and, and get out in space in the run game, and I feel very comfortable in Mitch Morse's ability to do that. I think his 
his mobility allows for more multiplicity in the run game because you know what you have in terms of his athleticism and his lateral mobility. I think I think you'll see the Bills be multiple with their run scheme, and, and Mitch Morse, uh, his versatility is a big reason why. Well, I think that's going to have a big impact on the interior battle. I mean, when you talk about it, you just hit the nail on the head. You're talking about Spencer Long and John Feliciano, two guys, and Jeremiah Searles. Those are three guys fighting for jobs on the inside of this offensive line who can play any position. I, in my head, I'm breaking our guard situation down into three tiers. You've got the guys with starting experience. I mean, that's led by Quentin Spain, who I think I, I haven't heard his name on a lot of Bills fans' lips, but to me, might be one of the more important additions we made. That might be just treasure. We, we might have just found gold. He's a massive offensive guard with impressive pass protection numbers. And he's got the experience. His, his run blocking grades have varied, you know, which inevitably led the Titans to look elsewhere. But they were hoping to bring him back, and they couldn't figure it out before the Bills landed him on a contract. When I look at him, I think of a guy who he should be one of your starting offensive guards. I just feel like with his pass protection numbers and the way the team seems to be leaning that direction with the Cody Ford pick in the draft, the you know bringing in Mitch Morris, who's not a road grader, but he's a very, very elite pass blocker. Spain seems to fit that mold. And then you've got Dukas. I mean, saying 2018... <laughs> he was a guy who I thought would be cut by now. And saying, Chris, that 2018 would be rough for him would be like saying the Battle of Waterloo went sort of awry for Napoleon. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. Pro Football Focus gave him a 38.5 run grade. It was the worst of all 77 NFL offensive guards that they tracked. <sighs> And then you look at the guys behind him, backups with potential. Feliciano, to your point, he's a veteran option. He's got four years of NFL experience under his belt, and he can play any place across the line. And I think Teller fits this mold. He's a late-round pick. I, I get it. They, it oh. He saw seven starts last year as a fifth-round draft pick, I believe, He's touted to have a mean streak, but I didn't get to see that because against the run, he was really bad. But he only gave up eight pressures during his starts. So when you're looking at those as kind of your high-end talents on this offensive line at the guard position, is there anybody that you have marked, Joe, as a favorite coming out of this? Well, you know, the, the guy that I, I liked a lot is Quentin Spain. Um, and, you know, I think he's a good run blocker. I think he the, the challenge for Quentin Spain has been that He's had a ton of different scheme changes there in Tennessee. Okay. And I think that has affected his ability to be a consistent run blocker. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, he's I mean, he's built for, for being a run blocker. I mean, if you just looked at him, you'd say that's a guy that can move bodies. And, and I think that that'll be something that they like. I he's think John huge. Feliciano has a better chance than some people think of being a starter for this football team. You know, he was behind three all-pros in Rodney Hudson – Gabe Jackson and Kalichi Assembly over there in Oakland, a player that Bobby Johnson is familiar with. I think that they like his edge and his versatility. I wouldn't rule him out. And then Spencer Long is one of the highest-paid offensive linemen on this team, a guy that's versatile. He had a, a thumb injury last year that affected him a bit. But when he's been healthy, Spencer Long's probably been the best guard that the Bills have rostered when he's healthy. And so I think that gives him a good chance of making the team as well. So uh, not just making a team, but starting for the team. So – 
I think you're going to see some mix of, of Feliciano, Spain, Long as your starters next to Morse. But Spain's thumb injury right now I think is going to push him back. I think he'll be first off the bench with those other two guys as your starting guards. Wow, you're calling it now. You want to plant the flag on that? That's... Yeah, we got to have some fun. I think <laughs> the two starting guards with Spencer Long and John Feliciano. I'm God, I love it. See, and that's the thing. I, I look at this group and I'm thinking to myself, this offensive line battle is going to be incredible this offseason. I'm going to get to watch. You know, I'm going to get to watch some guys really duking it out just to see. You know, and to your point with LaShawn McCoy and Frank Gore, iron sharpens iron, right? Well, when you see a lot of NFL-quality offensive linemen going up against each other in camp, they're all fighting for jobs. They're all professionals, and they understand this. It's going to get intense there. I mean, the one thing that stands out to me, when our offensive line was at its best, we had Richie Incognito, and he was a bull in the rushing attack. Say what you want about him as a human being, but he paved the way for LaShawn McCoy to flourish. I mean, I remember I was at that Colts game. I stayed until overtime. I stayed. After getting there at 6 o'clock in the morning to set up our tailgate in a friggin' blizzard, he paved the way for that game-winning touchdown. And I, it's, it's unbelievable thinking that our offense was best when we had that guy, and without him, you just watched our running game fall apart. Looking at the roster, I, I don't know which one of these guys, out of if you had to get one of them as a road grader-esque, or at least a force in the running game, which guard do you have tabbed as the best upside in that in that category? I, I, I think it's Quentin Spain. I know that he hasn't graded really? well since his rookie season uh, at uh, with the Titans, but this is a guy that's 6'5", 335 pounds, and you you go back to his, his games at West Virginia, and that's what he was known for, putting people on their back and moving bodies. And I really, I really do subscribe that the reason his run blocking – has not been graded as well recently. It's just because they have changed their scheme so many different times, and it really affected him. And I think that there's a guy if if there's if it's if it's fourth and short or third and short, and you're going to run the ball up the middle. I want it to be behind Quentin Spain. I think he's the guy that has the most upside as a powerful run blocker up front. Wow, you're you're getting me all kinds of excited over here. <laughs> I'm wringing my hands already. And then, so the way that position shakes out is, I think it's going to pay dividends to the guys playing on the edges. I mean, you look at what happened last year. Deion Dawkins had a significant step back from his rookie season where he performed really well as a left tackle to the point where we felt comfortable enough to get rid of Cordy Glenn and land the draft capital that it took to get our starting quarterback. And then he underachieved, and some people blame that on the fact that Vlad Dukas, who, pro football focus, just Google it, Vlad, pro football focus, and they're going to waterboard you with just all of the ways he was terrible. Yet you could see how that could kind of be a detriment to a tackle next to him. They're potentially returning just one starter from last season. And as someone who, I, me personally, I got tired of Jonathan Miller showing the entire country his ass. His whole ass. Every single time he had to go up against any kind of experienced pass rusher, it's a it's a breath of fresh air. When you look at what the depth chart looks like, you've got Dawkins, you've got Ford, you've got Inseki, who I'm very much I'm I'm proud to say that he is my annual. I pegged this guy as a, as a fit for the Buffalo Bills in free agency, and he signed here. I'll pat myself on the back for that. 
But when you look at this class, what do you think of our tackles coming into this season? Well, I, I think, you know, Deion Dawkins obviously regressed as a sophomore, but I think there's a lot of things that went into that. First of all, he admits that he wasn't as prepared as he needed to be for the season. We've already seen him revamp his diet and his entire cardio routine this offseason to get ready for the season. So I, I trust that that'll be better. But you know, this is a guy that went from Richie Incognito and Eric Wood playing next to him to Russell Bodine and Vlad Dukas <laughs> and Wyatt Teller. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's a tough jump, right? I fair. mean, all of a sudden you're the elder statesman on the offensive line. That's a big ask for a guy in year two coming out of Temple. Um, so I think that he's going to be the left tackle. And it's, you know, Chris Brown, who works for the Bills, he's an employee. He basically said that that was his job. He'd be surprised if it was anything else, and I, and I, I believe that. Uh, to me, it gets interesting when you talk about the rest of the mix and who's going to be the right tackle. Ty Inseki, one of the best swing tackles in the NFL, an older player, uh, kind of a late bloomer, but he's played really well when he's gotten the chance to play in Washington. Unfortunately, whenever he's had to play right tackle, He's not nearly as effective as when he's had to play left tackle. And, and I get concerned about him being over there on the right side. We know Deion Dawkins can't play right tackle. He experimented that with that in the preseason a couple yes. of times, and that was a train wreck. I'm not even thinking about doing that ever again. Well, the technique is different. Play. The technique is different. You know, you, when you talk about your yeah. post leg and how you try to mirror, it's muscle memory. And I've been, this has been the one thing I've been telling every Bills fan who tries to tell me, oh, well, you know what, they're going to plug Ty and Secchi you know, before the draft when we signed him. Oh, well, he's our de facto right tackle. Well, I don't know, because he did very well at left tackle, but at the same time, it's not. It's like muscle memory. It's anything else. When you do it one way so many times that you're very, very good at it, it's not always easy to just turn that around and do it as well on the other side. Well, I mean, Joe, Joe Thomas said it best when he said, if you're used to wiping your ass with your right hand, try doing it with your left. Exactly. <laughs> so... Yeah, hopefully that was okay for your podcast. I, I think oh, listen, we, we work blue as fuck. I don't care. I, who am I right, offending? Good, There's no good. sponsors we're, we're, here. We're loose. We're, we're loose, right? So 44, a high second-round pick. They traded up to get him. You know, he's a natural fit there. He played right tackle for Oklahoma. You don't have any concerns about him in terms of his, his play strength and being able to step in. Uh, Sean McDermott's not been shy about playing young, young players uh, over the last two years as the head coach of the Bills. So I think he's got a real shot at being that right tackle. And Ty Inseki's value probably comes from being able to step in in either spot. So I think it's I think Ford has the upper hand there. But uh, you know if if Inseki proves to just be the better player this this preseason and training camp, then he'll get that job. But I kind of think it's Cody Ford's to lose. The challenging thing is when you get behind that. I think those three guys will be on the roster. But who's after that? Larajian Waddles in the mix. He's a player that has experience. He's played both left and right tackle, but he's a bit redundant in terms of what you have in, in Ty Inseki, but at a lower level. But then you also have Jeremiah Searles, who they intentionally resigned, and he can play all five spots. And I think that'll go a long way in his efforts to make this roster. Listen, I know that everybody here is in love with Ladrian Waddell, and especially his wife. And I'm not trying to take anything <laughs> away from that. But here's what I'll say. Waddell, over his career, he's endeared himself just as much to defensive coordinators as he has the local fan base. Four seasons, four seasons of analysis, according to Pro Football Focus, he ranks 103rd out of 105 tackles in pass, pass, pass protection. I'm sorry, I, it, it's a non-starter for me. I don't, it's nothing personal. I mean, we know players, we've talked to them, I, I understand this is a business, but and I, I hope he finds a job somewhere, but I just don't see a place for him here with the rest of the talent that's on hand. I don't, and I hate to burst anybody's bubble about it, 
But that's just the way it is. And I mean, when you, but that comes down to this. When I take a look at the offensive line as a whole, this has to be the best collection of talent the Bills have brought to training camp on the offensive line in probably at least a couple years. I expect that the competition for a spot on this 53-man roster is going to reflect that. Now, here's the question I have for you if we're going to end with one final question about this offensive line group. The evaluation process in and of itself is going to be a fucking nightmare. I mean, would you agree with that? You're somebody who watches tape you review performances, everything you do over at the Draft Network and all the analysis that you put in, you do over the course of 365 days. You're talking about a coaching staff that has to sit down and figure out who they're going to ride into battle with in a handful of five weeks. With the talents we have on hand, do you think that this is going to be harder than normal for the Buffalo Bills going into this offseason? All right, so the dogs are going to be part of this segment here. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Bobby Johnson, a first-year NFL offensive line coach, he's got a big task ahead of him to get the right five together, to get the communication down and get this unit to gel. And the the thing is, like, it would have been better if Mitch Morse wasn't injured throughout the OTAs and Quentin Spain didn't break his thumb. And you really just have so many new pieces this year, it's a big ask. And so I do think that that's the biggest concern for me with the offensive line is Bobby Johnson year one as an offensive line coach, finding the right mix of, 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 of guys and, and allowing it to gel in time for the jets in week one, who have a very, very good defensive line. Oh, man, you're getting me excited. All right, listen, before we let you go, cause I understand you're a busy man. You've got places to be. You've got a family, you've got all kinds of stuff going on. And I envy you for that. <laughs> I envy you for all of the work. I mean, you were just getting off a call when we had you. We were waiting for you to come on. I mean, it's it's incredible your level of expertise and just the way I don't know, just your entire ability. It's it's nice. It's nice to have some that the Bills fan base has a resource like that to turn to outside of I don't want to say hacks in terms of podcasting, but hang on a second. <laughs> You still there, Joe? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. So before we let you go, I just I just want to ask you a couple questions here. Because I, I feel like it's great for the Bills fans to finally have a resource that they can turn to outside of just amateur podcasts. Somebody who does this, you know, also does film study professionally and now also does podcasting and also runs a website that has resources out there for Bills fans to turn to. To get someone get someone else's take on that. I want to know, one hot take in terms of the offense as a whole, one sleeper of yours, and one bold prediction for the training camp that's about to ensue here in a few weeks. Okay. Um, a sleeper, I'll go with Saran Neal. Oh, does this have to be offense? Yes, offense. Oh, I'm cheating myself here. It's okay. Um, my, my, my sleeper is going to be Frank Gore. I think that there's a negative connotation about him being part of the mix because of his age, but I think there's a lot, excuse me, a lot of value to what he brings to this football team. As I talked about earlier, I think that team that bills fans and, and you know, obviously the team itself will look back on the season and be glad that Frank Gore is part of the mix. Um, I think probably my sleeper is Cody Ford as a starting right tackle. I know that uh, there's a lot of belief that, you know, Ty Insecki and Deion Dawkins will man those two spots. And Ty Insecki's getting paid a decent amount of money, and, and he certainly has been looking for an opportunity to start. 
but I think his value of being able to play both positions and uh, and Cody Ford really being a, in terms of physically ready to play in the NFL, I think he'll get a strong chance to win that job. And you'll have to remind me what the last thing I was supposed to go through was. Oh, just one bold prediction for the offense in 2019. Uh, my bold prediction for the offense in 2019 is that the Bills have five different players that catch at least 40 passes. Ooh, that's impressive. Wow. Damn. You willing to put a Seagrams on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Joe, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Why don't you tell the people where they can find you on Twitter, where they can find your social media handles, and where they can find the Locked on Bills podcast every, every, every day. Really. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, I do a lot of work. I have two daily podcasts as well as the written work over at the Draft Network, so you can keep track of it all at the uh, at the Joe Marino on Twitter. That's where I share everything. The podcast is Locked on Bills. You guys can subscribe to that probably wherever you listen to this fabulous podcast. And I uh, definitely appreciate uh, the chance to come on. And I know that uh, people have been wanting this to collaborate, so I'm glad we are able to get this in. All right, again, you can find Joe Marino on Twitter at the Joe Marino. Everybody's been tweeting at us for it. Finally happened. It went well. The guy <laughs> knows his stuff. Absolutely. So I guess if I had to make a prediction and if I had a sleeper, I mean, I'm going to dig deep just because on the off chance I'm right. You're talking about sleepers. What is a sleeper, Chris? It's a player that nobody has on the radar who might be able to come in and contribute. We just got done talking about what a crapshoot that tight end position is, right? Correct. Well, there's a kid there named Nate Becker. Okay, Right now, he has no substantial amount of tape in terms of offensive ability. No one knows what he is because Miami of Ohio didn't use him at all in the passing game. But at six foot five and 260-something pounds, he brings to the table the blocking element that no one's been able to get from Jason Kroon. Yeah, Jason Kroon has flashed a little bit as a pass catcher, but he's a wide receiver trying to play the tight end position. When I look at this kid, what I see is a guy who, a lot like Lee Smith, he's, he's big, he's, an, he's flashed just imposing ability to block the line of scrimmage, but he's got a little bit of athleticism. I mean, his, when I look at his pro day, 24 reps on the bench, which would have been good for, uh, which is impressive for any player on offense. And then a 35-inch vertical leap, which would have been fifth for all the tight ends that went to the combine. This Becker kid might be kind of that hidden gem that, I mean, think about it. We took a chance on Jason Kroon. The only reason he's here is because this staff took a look at an undrafted guy and said, hey, we're going to try to make hay with what we have. And out of all the positions that they committed resources to trying to fix, tight end wasn't one of them. So when I see this backer kid, I see a kid who's got a lot more upside than I think anybody knows about. And I'm willing to say, look, if this coaching staff likes athletic ability and upside more than they do what you've already put on tape, he already has a leg up on half of the people on the depth chart at tight end. So that's it. I think that he's my guy that I'm going to be watching during training camp in terms of unheralded rookies. Because he has a legitimate chance to crack the roster if he can just come in and outplay Kroon, which shouldn't be hard. The kid couldn't catch a touchdown pass. Not one. Chris, do you have anybody that you're, or anything that you're looking at heading into training camp? Uh, I would be the uh, offensive line. 
will they in training camp and preseason be able to come together to work as a unit and communicate because what? It's just like one returning starter technically to the offensive line? That's that's a fair point. When I look at that, I, I, the thing I fear for is that there's so many moving parts. And this coaching staff is going to have to do such a job of just managing all of the, hey, we need to get this guy. This guy has to get snaps. And so does this guy, and so does this player, and so does this player. So we can see if he can hang with the ones. There's only, only so many snaps to go around, Chris. There really is. And so with that said, it's, it's going to be imperative that the offensive line gel and gel quickly. And that the guys who are going to be starters emerge quickly. Because come the second preseason game, you're going to need to know that you have a starting five. Right? Yeah. You got to have a starting five. You can't go much farther than that. Yeah. I'm telling you, that battle is going to be fast and furious. And I think that's the crux of training camp right there, is who you put in front of Josh Allen to help prop him up and allow guys to get separation, which will allow Josh Allen to be a more effective quarterback, which is where the offense runs through. That's it. That's the highlight of training camp right there, folks. Yeah, training camp starts uh, next Thursday. So uh, are we going to be off next week, back August 1st? Back August 1st. To weekly podcasts. I don't know, folks. We're going to have to wait and see, but make sure you tune in next week, uh, two weeks from now, to find out who our guest is going to be as we start our AFC Roundup. It's going to be great. It's a fun segment that I like to do every single year. God, I'm just excited about the direction of this team. I'm excited that we're not going to have to... The idea of the fact that we're not going to have to relive the horror show that last year's offense was. Chris, I'm already itching to go make another drink. we got to get out of here, folks. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day for showing up. Thank you to Joe Marino for joining us. Guys, we got to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. That was Joe Marino from Lockdown Bills. And this has been the Rockpile Report Podcast. Thanks for joining us.